0: Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Psalm 110. Psalm 110. During this Advent season we've been examining Old Testament passages which point us to Jesus. And there are many of those. In fact, uh, one could argue that every part of the Old Testament, in some sense points us to Jesus. I had a classmate in seminary who grew up in an Orthodox uh, Jewish home. While we were learning the uh, Hebrew alphabet, he was having his devotions in Hebrew every morning out of his Hebrew Bible. But I remember him telling about the day that he really came to understand the gospel. And he said when he opened up his Bible, this is his Hebrew Bible, he said he saw Jesus on every page. And um, I think that's true. We don't maybe see it that way, but we need to seek to understand that. So that's where we are. But no passage is more central to this task than Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. In fact, verse 1 of Psalm 110 is quoted or alluded to no less than 27 times in the New Testament. It is without question the greatest of the messianic psalms. For it doesn't just draw some parallels between someone or something in the Old Testament and Jesus. It speaks directly about Jesus without naming him as Jesus. Edward Reynolds, one of the best historical expositors of the psalms, wrote, This psalm is one of the fullest and most compendious prophecies of the person and offices of Christ in the whole Old Testament. So listen as I read it, Psalm 110, a Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on the day of battle. Arrayed in holy majesty from the womb of the dawn, you will receive the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are priests forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from the brook beside the way, therefore he will lift up his head. There's some uh, problem passages in this uh, psalm, and I'm just going to avoid them and just try to talk to you about the main things going on here. Um, This psalm stands on uh, on two great pillars, two pronouncements from the Lord. Uh, One is in verse 1 where it starts out, The Lord says... And the second one is in verse 4, where it says the Lord has sworn. These two great statements of the Lord give us two um, uh, uh, points to consider this morning. So the first point is this, and we'll spend most of our time on this point. First point, there is no king like Jesus. There is no king like Jesus. We've just been through an election uh, cycle, so we're very familiar with gotcha politics, aren't we? Questions not intended to throw new light on the subject, but only to to, to trap the, uh, the, the the person being questioned. That's how the leaders of Israel dealt with Jesus largely. They ask, "Gotcha questions. For example, they ask, "Should we pay taxes to Caesar? Now that's a trick question because everyone knew that Caesar claimed, to usurp God's place. He claimed divine right. So to say, yes, pay taxes to Caesar Caesar seemed to legitimize Caesar's claim to God's place. On the other hand, it was illegal not to pay taxes. So to say, no, we don't pay taxes, was was to, to, to call people to violate the law of the land. You see, there was no good answer to that question. It's a gotcha question. Except that Jesus outsmarted his opponents. He said, given to Caesar what is Caesar's and given to God what is God's. Hmm. Not so easy to catch him in these false dilemmas. Though they never quit trying. Well, once after a whole series of those gotcha questions, and you can read them in Mark 12 and Matthew 22, there's a whole series of them. Uh, then after, after several of these, Jesus had a question of his own. He says, what about the Messiah? Whose son is he? Well, that's easy. He's the son of David, they replied. Jesus, so Jesus continued, How then is it that David calls him Lord? And then he quoted Psalm 1, verse 1 where David said, the Lord, that is Yahweh, said to my Lord, that is my master, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Then Jesus asked the follow-up, which left them dumbfounded. He said, if David calls the Messiah Lord, how can the Messiah be David's son? And folks, that's the first thing this passage shows us It's the first way that it shows us that there is no king like this Jesus. You see, the Jews firmly believed in the coming Messiah. He would indeed be the son of David. And like David, his father, this Messiah would be a powerful warrior. And he would drive the Romans out of the streets of Jerusalem and return the promised land to God's chosen people. But here, Jesus demonstrated that the scriptures predicted a Messiah who was not just a descendant of David. God's Messiah would also be David's divine Lord, who would rule with his father from his heavenly throne. There's no other king like that. This king is the God-man. And and no, we have not misunderstood that. This is what the scriptures teach. We read it just this morning in Romans 1, that Christ Jesus is the son who as to his human nature was a descendant of David and was declared to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Son of David, son of God, man, divine On the day of Pentecost. And actually the apostle Peter made the same kind of point. He noted the contrast between David, who spoke about uh, promises, but who was buried nearby, and David's son and Lord, the Messiah Jesus, who had ascended into heaven and sat at the right hand of the Father, ruling. So Peter concluded, God has made this Jesus both Lord and Messiah, or Christ Still today, people have really confused ideas about Jesus. Some say he's a prophet. That's always been one view. Some say he's a, a misunderstood martyr. Some say he was a radical anti-establishment champion of the poor. Some say he was a mild-mannered teacher of love and peace. But Jesus is not just whatever you want to make him to be. He is David's son. He is David's Lord. He is the great king who rules with absolute sovereignty. He is the God, man, Messiah, and there is no king like Jesus. But there's another thing about this great king. Notice in verse 2 and 3 that while he exercises absolute rule, he does so with willing subjects in the midst of his unwilling enemies. Now the Jews wanted a Messiah who would immediately destroy destroys em- enemies, but if Jesus had been that kind of Messiah, they would have all been destroyed themselves for their unbelief. But this Messiah that the Scriptures talk about, this Messiah that David, uh, that the Lord speaks to David about, is the Jesus that we see portrayed in the New Testament. He's one who did not come to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He's one who does not delight in the death of the wicked. So he is patient, delaying his coming that all might hear the gospel and believe. He does not treat us as our sins deserve, but he lavishes his goodness on us to bring us to repentance. And and when he sees us weary and broken, He extends to us his promise of rest if we will just come to him. And when sinners do come and confess their need and and repent of their sin, he does not then mete out judgment. He welcomes us with loving arms. There is no king like this Jesus. He is patient and full of grace. And how are you responding to this patient, gracious king? Do you try his patience by continuing to sin, presuming upon his grace? That's his job to forgive. Are are you miffed when he's gracious to others that you don't like so much? While you enjoy his kindness yourself? Are you complacent, acting only with a begrudging sense of duty? Or do you actually delight in his grace? And love to show it. And love to tell of it to others without hope. And are you one of the willing troops in verse 3? Offering yourself freely in his service. Knowing that there is no king. Gracious and good like this Jesus. But even as we extol his patience and grace. We can't neglect the latter part of this psalm. For this God, man, king, who is full of grace is also the judge who is coming to judge. That's the message of verse 5 and 6. The Lord who rules from God's right hand is also coming to judge. On the day of his wrath, he will shatter those who have rejected him, whether kings or commoners. He will execute absolute justice, punishing the guilty great and small. The Gospels and the New Testament epistles uh, unpack the greatness of His grace, but if we we look back in the Old Testament at the prophecies concerning the coming day of the Lord, and if we look to the end of the the New Testament, to the the book of Revelation, and and, and the things that describe the return of Christ, we will see that these, these parts of Scripture paint a sobering picture Of judgment day. We read it, for example, in the Old Testament in Isaiah 13, wail for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will fall limp and every man's heart will faint. They will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look at one another in astonishment, their faces aflame. That's the Old Testament picture of judgment. Go to Re- Revelation 6, and we find this kind of picture of judgment. I watched as he opened the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair, and me down a little. Then the kings of the earth, and the princes, and the generals, and the rich, and the mighty, and every slave, and every free man, hid in caves among the rocks and the mountains. They called out to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of the wrath has come and who can stand in our day we've become quite proficient at ignoring the coming judgment but folks this king always keeps his word he keeps his promise for good and he keeps his promise of judgment The fact that it has, in our time, in our place, become a badge of honor to tolerate the intolerable does not mean that God has changed his standards. And the scriptures still say, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So really, is there any hope is there any hope for any of us? We all fall short. No one is righteous enough to escape God's perfectly righteous judgment. Ah, but the Lord makes a second great announcement in this passage. We find it in verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind as he says to David's Lord and David's son, you are a priest forever." In the order of Melchizedek, Melchizedek, which brings us to our second point. What does that mean? Our second point is this Jesus brings us to God. Jesus brings us to God. And it's only recently, a little aside here, only recently that I figured out what B O G O means. BOGO. Do you say BOGO? Is it just B-O-G-O? I don't know. I saw it here and there and it made no sense. I said, what is that? I've never seen it before. And then one day I was walking through a store and I saw a sign which also spelled out the meaning. I'm probably the only one that didn't know this, but it means buy one, get one. Presumably buy one, get one free. And I bring that up because today we have a buy one, get one free Text. As you know, we've been studying Old Testament passages in which there's something or someone who points us to Christ. But in this passage, we get a freebie. The second person who foreshadows the Lord Jesus. We certainly King David foreshadowed the Messiah, the, the greater king to come, David's son and David's Lord. But now we also have the priest Melchizedek foreshadowing Jesus as a greater priest who would come. So what did priests do? In the Old Testament. Well, they received people's gifts. That is, they represented God by receiving people's acts of worship. And in turn, they pronounced blessing on the worshipers. They were God's voice of blessing and encouragement. We still use the priestly blessings. Perhaps you've heard this one. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That's the Aaron, the priest's blessing from number six. You see, in short, the priests were mediators between God and the people. They represented the people to God, and they represented God to the people. And God provided such priestly ministry in a man named Melchizedek. Back in Abraham's time, long time before Moses and his brother Aaron, the priest, and the sons of Levi, the priest, way back before that, God provided a priest in this person, Melchizedek. Well, later, when the laws were fulfilled, when Christ came and all the ceremonies ended, the need for priestly ministry did not end, someone still has to stand in the gap between a holy God and sinful people. And so, in Jesus, God provided a priest like Melchizedek, not serving under the law, but serving nonetheless as a mediator. This Jesus atoned for man's sin by offering himself as a perfect sacrifice. And then because he rose from the dead and ascended to heaven, he now intercedes for us, represents us to the Father, prays for us. And his ministry for us is absolutely effective. It is our sure hope. Listen to how it's described in Hebrews 7, which also talks about Melchizedek. It says, now there have been many of those priests, that's just the priests of the law, since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. It's a wonderful thing that Jesus came as God's king. He advances the Father's agenda. He inspires disciples to follow him. And one day the king will bring judgment and establish pure justice on the earth. It's a great thing that God has sent his son to be a king. But it is even more wonderful to us that Jesus is a great high priest. For he made atonement for our sin. He offered himself. And he intercedes for us this day before the Father. And he blesses us and he ensures our secure relationship to the Father. In short, Jesus is the mediator who brings us to God. Folks, you and I have no other entrance into God's presence, you know. We come through Jesus, or you can't come. We're received because of what Jesus has done, or we're not received, we're rejected. All that we have, we have through Jesus. Everything. There are many things in the Old Testament which point forward to Jesus, but few so powerful and so important as what we find in Psalm 110. At least these two things. There is no king like Jesus He's the God-man, David's son, David's Lord. He's full of grace, extended even in the midst of his enemies. But he will also judge the world with absolute righteousness. But this king is also our high priest. And as our priest, he brings us to God and secures our position before God and prays for us and, and, and sustains us Folks, we have no hope so certain as this. Amen. Let's pray. Father, so much we don't understand about Psalm 110. So much we don't understand about you, Lord, becoming a man and being such a king, the God-man king. Oh, Father, we understand that you're righteous and that You have a right to judge and parts of wrath against sin, but we we don't understand your grace. and The fact that you should become a mediator to stand between the Father and his holiness and us and our sinfulness and make a way for us to come to the Father's presence and to sustain us here. We thank you, Lord. May we never stop praising you for there's no king like you, Lord Jesus. And we have no one to bring us to the Father but you. May these things ring true with us. May they capture our hearts, simple as they are, and to hold us close to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.